0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: As we post this podcast, the U.S. Senate is poised to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett, a favorite of conservatives, to the Supreme Court of the United States to replace liberal icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What will this change mean for the court and the country I sat down with a grand dame of Supreme Court journalists, Nina Totenberg, to talk about it and her long and colorful career. Here's that conversation. Nina Totenberg, it's so great. It would be great to see you under any circumstance, but it is particularly good to see you uh, today. We're recording this on Friday uh, before the U.S. Senate will vote. On the uh, nomination of uh, of of Judge Barrett to uh, succeed your friend, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, there is a huge gulf between them in terms of judicial philosophy. Tell me about uh, about Judge Barrett.
2: Well, Judge Barrett is an originalist originalist from what I can tell. You know, she's only been on the bench three years. So there is a limited amount that we can tell that she's willing to do as a judge that she might like to do as a policymaker to speak in her terms because she said, talks so much about policy versus law and every nominee does. I mean, every nominee tells you they're going to they're gonna follow the law, they're not going to impose their own views and that stands for Democratic nominees well, listen. For- I
1: prepped a couple of I prepped a couple of candidates for the Supreme Court justices Sotomayor and Kagan and uh so I understand that whole exercise I have to say that Amy Coney Barrett was as disciplined a, a witness as I have seen and she she discharged that with I, I joked that you know she held up the pad that with nothing on it to show that she had no notes and I said that she had a, a blank pad in front of her to remind her to say nothing
2: Yes, I think that's right. But I think that increasingly these hearings are so unsatisfying to everyone that at some point they begin to break the back of the system. Now, I've seen other nominees do it, but I think perhaps because either because she wanted to and her reminders told her to, or because she had only 16 days to prep for a hearing at the same time she was meeting with people, that her... Her basic line was sort of like Schultz in uh, Hogan's Heroes: for "Old people, <laughs> I know nothing. I know nothing."
1: That is a great cultural she reference.
2: She couldn't even acknowledge whether or not she believed in climate change. Yeah,
1: right. She, that was striking. She,
2: she couldn't tell Cory Booker whether or not she'd read any studies about systemic racism or read any books that are Pulitzer prize winning books like James Foreman's book or the real, um, the new Jim Crow. Um, And those are all, you know, in the law and there are studies in the law that for anybody that is a lawyer or a judge that sort of is interested at all in this field, you'd at least read, you might not agree with them, but you'd at least read, Some of them. I thought it was a strikingly uninformative. I don't Mm -hmm. expect judicial nominees for lower courts or the Supreme Court to say a lot these days. But to say really nothing is really striking.
1: Well, the whole exercise, you know, uh, the president has Operation Warp Speed to find a vaccine. And Lindsey Graham had Operation Warp Speed to get and Mitch McConnell to get this nominee through the Senate. We've never quite seen anything like this, the speed with which they've moved to get this done before the election. And frankly, you know, the contrast with what happened with Judge Merrick Garland Mm -hmm. uh, four years ago when it took 400 days for the Senate to fill a seat is you talk about putting torque on the system. This is putting torque on the system. This is why people are outraged.
2: A lot of people, Democrats in particular, and a lot of independents are outraged. But, you know, the solution that they're offering, which is to do it in reverse by packing the courts, it's not that I think it's a good or bad idea. It's it's that I think that if you're asking a new president to do that, if there is a Democratic president, you're asking him you're asking biden to use up every
1: i agree with this
2: every drop of political capital he has, and to forego doing anything that he wants to do
1: well and understand he's coming to office in if he wins he'll be coming to office in the midst of dual national crises one related to the pandemic and the other well associated with it in the economy uh and uh you know, a a whole range of issues in terms of rebuilding trust in government, uh, rebuilding global alliances. He's going to have his plate full. And, you know, one thing you learn when you work in the White House is uh, that pipeline of things that you can get done is pretty narrow and you have to pick and choose. Uh, And I agree with you. And he's and, you know, look, there are structural there are there are, uh, you know, institutional arguments that, need to be really thrashed out uh before you take that step because it could become you know i mean i want to ask you about that and i'm going to defer this for a second and finish the uh, the discussion of amy coney barrett uh and i want to get to your incredible life as well so we we've got a lot to cover here
2: you asked me about her and i you know it's very You, you
1: call her an originalist first of all explain so, you, you 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 you've covered the court longer than anyone has been on the court who is there right now, and <laughs> so you, you
2: thank you. <laughs> you
1: know, yeah. Well, you started when you were six. Everybody knows Everybody that. Knows yeah,
2: that. I started when I was six. With the pad in my hand. Originalism, as described by Justice Scalia, is that the Constitution means what it meant to the founding fathers and those who ratified the Constitution at the time it was written. And the trouble is that there have been a, you know, over 200 years, 250 years of precedents from the Supreme Court since then. And as um, Justice Scalia himself used to say, he was a weak-kneed originalist because of all those precedents. He didn't agree with some of them, and some of them he would have been able, but would have been willing to reverse, like Roe versus Wade, or same-sex marriage if he had the opportunity to reverse it. But at the same time, he he was a person who did believe in also the foundation of law, which is based to a significant degree on precedent. Judge Barrett is completely right. Uh, there have been precedents that have been overturned. But after all, the famous case of Marbury versus Madison in the early 1800s, which said that the Supreme Court could overturn a statute if it violated the Constitution. That's not actually in the Constitution. That's something Mm -hmm. that Chief Justice Marshall, the most famous and important Chief Justice in our history, that he and his court unanimously inferred from the words of the Constitution. Judge Barrett is not big, as far as I can tell, on inferring much of anything. But because she's only been a judge for three years, and because we don't know just how much she's willing to go back to what on the court they call first principles, like back to the beginning, we don't know. But one suspects she'll be very much like Justice Clarence Thomas, and to uh, some degree also like Justice Neil Gorsuch, and um, even Justice Alito, although Justice Alito is not as originalist about everything as, as those other two. And certainly, Chief Justice Roberts, who is a conservative by anybody's measure, is not that much of an originalist. He also believes in sort of a degree of institutionalism and the institutionalism of the law as it builds up over time.
1: Well, let me ask you some practical questions about this. You know, just today, I I think today, the court took a case on uh, the census. Was it today that that happened? Or is that maybe I just heard it on your air, actually, that they're hearing later in the month uh, of November, I should say, case about the the Trump administration wants to interpret the census as the counting uh, of uh, people absent immigrants, Un, undocumented immigrants who live in states. Constitution it says the census is to count all persons who live in the states. That seems very clear. So would you expect a, a justice Barrett to say no? The Constitution says persons, and that means persons. Or will she uh, make a, a more political judgment about that?
2: I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things we're going to have to see. There's also a statute involved because the president does have the authority under a statute to give some guidance to the Census Bureau and the Secretary of Commerce and uh, as to how to report what the, how and when to report what the total numbers are.
1: That would be overturning 230 years of, uh, talk about precedent, 230 years of precedent be a kind of an extraordinary decision for someone who presents themselves as uh, an originalist. What about what about uh, the other cases that came up so much during her hearings? One is Roe versus Wade and the other is the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act hearing is going to happen a week after the election at the Supreme what? Court. She said she noted that that was a case really about severability, whether if you declare one part of the law unconstitutional, the whole law has to go. Uh, do you have a sense of of what she might do on that?
2: I don't, but I do know that she's been very critical of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in not one, but two cases. One was five to four, um, upholding the mandate as a tax. And the second was an interpretation of the law as written, which was six to three. And the chief wrote both opinions, and she's been very critical of the reasoning in both. And You know, I've learned not to anticipate too much, but I think certainly the tea leaves would suggest that she probably thinks, um, she may well think that you can't sever one part of the law from everything else. Um, but the counterargument, of course, is that there is no mandate anymore for all practical purposes because Republicans zeroed it out. The language is still there, but it, they zeroed out the amount. Mm-hmm. So for all practical purposes, the law is operating right now without a
1: mandate. So mm-hmm. it's
2: already been severed in some ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a, a point of great uh, concern to people. And Roe versus Wade, what is the future of Roe versus Wade?
2: I think that is very clearly, in great danger for those who care about it. Um, There's no doubt that the court will hollow it out um, and chip away and not too gentle away anymore, because there are now very clearly six conservative votes on the court, pretty hardcore conservative votes. And even if one of them drops out, there are still five votes. So, Either the the court will decide. Well, we're just going to make this a meaningless right in the states that want to make it meaningless, so that either either there are no clinics there, no abortion clinics there, or um, there be completely inaccessible, uh, or the 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 right is narrowed down to a certain limited number of er- weeks in early pregnancy a variety of things that contradict Roe versus Wade, or they'll just eventually reverse it. And I think ultimately it's very likely that they will reverse it.
1: Yeah, you're an observer, not just of the justices, but the institution of the court and you've seen it evolve over time. Uh, what is the impact? Uh, you know, we, we have this crisis of trust in institutions. What is the impact of having a court uh, of justices who, who's, philosophy is so out of sync with the, the majority thinking in the country so on a case like you know on the issue of abortion rights or you know if they were to uh zero out the affordable care act which has become popular or uh, gun safety laws uh you know a series of things and then things that get f- less attention but you know the re- relationship between uh, workers and employers, between consumers and and corporations and so on. Um, the court this this court that is now emerging with her joining seems uh, kind of out of step with public opinion in a way we haven't seen in a very long time.
2: I think that's true. I think we're likely to see a court now that will be more conservative than any court. Dating back probably to the 1930s, when the court was willy-nilly striking down New Deal legislation at the time that FDR was trying to get the country out of the Great Right
1: it was the last time we heard court packing discussed.
2: It was the last time, but interestingly, it was a slow burn for Roosevelt. It took three years for him to finally get up to the point where he had a court packing plan and he was ready to challenge the court. And his timing really, to use a legal term, it really sucked. Um, <laughs> it, it, because I
1: know that term. <laughs> because I, speak, I, I know a little Latin.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it at the, because it was just at that moment that one of the conservative justices basically flipped and started yeah. voting to support Yeah, the great Biden. phrase
1: a switch in time save nine.
2: Right, a switch in t- in time save nine, but there isn't one justice at the moment. If if we see a court of six really conservative members uh or even just five, that's enough. And there isn't a uh, somebody who's who's looks like th- would there aren't two justices who would modify their views at all, to sort of stay within the, or I should say, out of the crosshairs of public opinion too much and out of the crosshairs of of proposals to really change the court, which I think probably every member of the court thinks is not a good idea.
1: Justice Roberts, um, who Kind of improbably has emerged as sort of a swing vote on the court on some key issues, as you mentioned, the Affordable Care Act being one of them, uh, on an abortion case from Louisiana recently. But the one thing that you seem to, you you sense from him, and you would know uh, better than anybody, uh, is uh, concern about the institutional integrity of the court and how the court is perceived. Um, he must be he must be aware of. What the impact of a court that is way over on the right when the country is sort of living in the middle.
2: I think he does. I think he probably has a different perception of what the middle is. It wouldn't be your perception of what the middle is, and it probably wouldn't be um, Justice Scalia's perception of what the middle is either. But he does understand some sort of basic ideas about institutional integrity. And he knows that the court is still much more popular than either of the other two branches of government. People still have a lot more confidence in the court than they do in Congress or the executive branch or, for that matter, pe- the press, my profession. Uh, so it's the numbers are still, comparatively speaking, they're going down, but they're still pretty decent for the court. But that could change quite dramatically if, for example, you saw a series of cases that made abortion unaccessible unac- 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 in half the country, um, especially to poor people. If you saw suddenly the court striking down state and federal gun safety laws, if you saw the court uh, more aggressively protecting religious rights at the expect at the expense of uh, generally acceptable, generally uh, applicable laws, for for example, anti-discrimination laws. Uh, I think, you know, ultimately you could see a real rebellion, but I, I think it would take years, not weeks, not months.
1: It is striking how we now look at, you know, more than I've ever seen before, you see uh, when decisions come on controversial cases, who which president appointed that, mm-hmm judge um, as if it is a r or a d next to their name i mean it it, used
2: to be the case up until really the retirement of justice stevens and justice souter who were after all both republican appointees ended up being viewed by republican social conservatives as traitors really to uh, to the cause of republican conservatism And and as a result, and even Chief Justice Roberts, you know, you heard during the in twenty fifteen in the in the debates, you heard Senator Cruz, for example, attacking Chief Justice Roberts and characterizing him in ways that you might think he was an Obama appointee.
1: Yeah,
2: far from an Obama appointee. Right. It is true that he crosses over and um, votes with the liberals on occasion often staking out a separate opinion for why he is doing what he's doing. But those occasions
1: are extremely rare, extremely rare.
2: You can count them on one hand.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I don't want to cheat your story here because like I said, it is a remarkable story. I want to start with your dad and his journey here to this country. He was from Poland. Mm -hmm. He found his way uh, through music. Tell me about your dad.
2: He lived to be 101. And, and he, so he was born on, on New Year's day in 1911. And he as a boy, his father was an architect and was and an engineer and was was in Russia doing a, a, a job. And his older sister was taken care of by some uh, cousin, distant cousin during the day. And But that person didn't like little boys, so they had to figure out what to do with five-year-old Roman. And the guy downstairs said he would take care of him because... He worked at night, and he was the concertmaster of the Moscow Opera Orchestra. So what do you do with a kid? You're the concertmaster. You give him a violin, and you teach him violin. And within six months, he was touring with my father. So my father was a child prodigy, and he was giving concerts all, all over Eastern Europe in, by the time he was 11 and 12 years old. And then went to Germany to study with the most famous violin teacher of the time, whose name was Carl Flesch and became his teaching assistant in the 1930s. And um, you know what was going on in, in, in Germany in the 1930s. And he then moved to Paris and eventually came to the United States on a concert tour in 1935 and was just a huge success. I mean, with, glowing reviews in the New York times and the Washington post. And he was asked to play at the white house.
1: Yeah. Play for the Roosevelts.
2: He played for the Roosevelts. It's so he had, I loved hearing him talk about that because the vice president was sitting in the front row with his shoes off a hole in his socks and a spittoon. And there was my dad and other famous people playing for the, for the president. And he, and he eventually he 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 had been in europe he was in his early 20s then and he had just played in europe before he got on the boat to come here he had just played for the king of italy and it was very formal he had to borrow a cape and top hat from the um polish ambassador he had to back out of the hall because the king was you're not to turn your back on the king and here he is after the concert at the White House, and Mrs. Roosevelt is serving him dinner, serving him dinner on the dinner plate and handing him dinner. And he says to himself, you know, this is the country for me. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to live in that old world. And so he immigrated to the United States. He was, as he put it when one of my sisters put in her college application that her father was a refugee. He said, I was not a refugee. I was an invited guest of the United States government.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you, um, you you, grew up um, partly in New York, partly in Boston. Mm-hmm. Tell me about you. You had an early, you became interested in journalism at a very early age. Tell me how that I guess it flowed from your Nancy Drew obsession or something.
2: Well, partly, uh, I think every woman of my age and younger was a big Nancy Drew fan. And there's a really good reason for that. There were no other women, very few women models for us to look to. And uh, but I when I was a teenager, I I read Teddy White's book, The Making of the President. Yeah.
1: 1960. Well, yeah. Classic.
2: And I decided, and I was about 16 or 17 at the time, and I decided that that's what I wanted to do, which was a preposterous idea at the time, because there were no women.
1: Why, Why? What was it about that that caused you to feel that way?
2: Because I thought to myself, I want to be a witness to history. I don't, I'm not the kind of person who wants to be a crusader. I want to be the storyteller of the times I live in. And if necessary, I want to be an investigator even in the times I live in. But it was a crazy idea in a lot of ways. And I was just lucky enough and bullheaded enough to get jobs the, my very first job was for the record American in Boston, and I was on the women's page. And yeah. maybe it was not the women's page of today. It was recipes and and, yeah. and a few fashion stories and weddings. Yeah. Um, and I would work an extra shift so I could do other things. Yeah. I would do the police beat. I would do the school committee, which at the time was a huge fight over busing. So it was yeah. real. I, you know, it was, I had a great time. And then I covered, then I went to work for the, um, a small community newspaper where I, one day I looked at the front page and every story on the front page had yeah. my timeline.
1: <laughs> yeah. But that yeah. was
2: great, great, great practice. And yeah. finally I went, came to Washington. Well,
1: I had a question about the Peabody Times, uh, which I want you to confirm, which is uh, when you called a bank that was being robbed. <laughs> I love this story. Tell this story.
2: So I, 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 I don't remember how I got the tip. I think somebody must have called and said, there's a bank robbery going on in, in downtown Peabody. There's only one bank. And, and so I called the bank and I said, hi, it's Nina Totenberg at the Peabody Times. I understand there's been a, a robbery there. And the guy says to me, yeah, this is the robber.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what, did you, what did you say?
2: Don't actually remember, but they were the most. Uh, they were the,
1: the hapless, worst, huh?
2: They were the most hapless robbers. They led <laughs> the police on a chase with cash flowing out of their, of their satchel their so that the police could catch up with them quite quickly that way.
1: <laughs> well, answering the phone wasn't very smart. No, that's that, that's for sure. Yeah, you went on to Washington. Yes. Uh, after that, and, and tell me about that.
2: So I got a job. My, you know, I, I worked briefly for for roll call. And then I went to work for the late great national observer, which was a, a general newspaper, a national newspaper put out by Dow Jones, which at the time owned the Wall Street Journal. And, um, and I had a wonderful time there. And then I, I worked for a magazine and then I eventually w- was hired by NPR, recruited by NPR.
1: Well, I want to show I want to slow you up for a second. Um, first of all, um, and and I, I, I say this, I, I honor you as one of the truly great journalists in the country. I know at the Observer you had a reverse, shall we say, and you left there because you got accused of plagiarism. And um, so I, I ask you this not to explain what happened, but You're like a very, very successful person. You've been a driven person. You've always, that must have been painful.
2: It was awful. And it was at least partially true. But what I had done was use quotes from other publications. I mean, quotes from like David Axelrod. And I didn't credit the other publications, which we are much better about these days. At the time, some of my colleagues, not on The Observer, were sort of outraged. But you know, in hindsight, I think they they probably made the right decision. Um it was very hard, but what was harder was being a woman, frankly. Um and you never know when something like that happens either in hindsight how much of it had to do with a certain amount of resentment. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of big scoops when I yeah. was the observer. And um and you didn't you never know how much of it was due. I was the only woman on the news desk uh there was another woman um at first in on the culture desk and there was another woman in the sports desk and i had had also a something of a run in with my boss um
1: so it could have been well, they were not, looking for not a... To put
2: a put to put to find a point on yeah it, i get it he kept propositioning me and i kept no. Oh. so yeah
1: know, you, I don't think you could put a finer point on it than that. Uh, <laughs> that seems pretty. But um, New Times Magazine, you worked there. That was a, a magazine I used to read uh, religiously during its short, uh, during its short uh, lifespan. But you wrote one of the greatest stories of, uh, I, I just so enjoyed it, about the 10 uh, dumbest members of Congress and uh, uh, Bill Scott, Of Virginia was, uh, you declared him the dumbest congressman. And then as if to prove the point, he called a press conference to rebut the suggestion (laughs) that he was the dumbest member of Congress, thus confirming your conclusion, I think.
2: I remember it was during uh, Watergate and I was interviewing the ranking Republican on the committee in the, just off the House floor. And I saw this bunch of reporters heading towards us. And I thought, oh, my God, what do I not know that I need to ask him? Because they're all coming to him. So something's happened and I don't know about it. And um, they get there and they are not trying to talk to him. They're trying to talk to me because Bill Scott has just had this press conference, (laughs) in which he denied that he was the dumbest. (laughs) Now. Maybe that might have been justifiable, except New Times Magazine had, you know, was in existence only two, three years. Yeah,
1: it, it, we, it, this was not the New York Times.
2: No, this, they, I used to say this probably had a readership in Washington of about 14 people. So, yeah. uh, you know, it,
1: it was. Just, but that story became a very well read story because. Yes. <laughs> because of what he did. So you went on to public radio. How was the transition from uh, from print to. Uh, uh, to to radio, yeah.
2: You know, I on the one hand, it was easier for me than some other people because I always wrote in a kind of narrative style and in short sentences. I wouldn't say I'm the most beautiful writer in the world, but I'm a clear, very clear writer, and and I am a good storyteller. I do know how to tell a good story. I know how to make people laugh. I know how to make people cry. I I'm pretty good at that craft and i was already good at that what i didn't know anything about was how to use sound and to this day i learned new things about how to use sound to this day there are producers at npr who will teach me something new about it.
1: you uh what what and, and it was at npr that you uh, began to focus on the supreme court you're you're not a lawyer by by mm-hmm. trade no. uh what 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 drew you to the Supreme Court?
2: I got assigned to do it. It was a weekly. So I had a chance to learn something about the beat. And I mean, but I still covered lots of other things for The Observer. And I still covered lots of other things and lots about politics when I first came to NPR, Um, which when I came to NPR, it was tiny. Most when I would call people up and say I'm from National Public Radio, they really didn't know what I was talking about. and uh, we had one news sh- program a day that was an hour and a half, not even two hours, like all things considered is today. And you could do—I I covered campaigns. I covered—I always covered the vice presidential campaign. I love doing that. I would always go and write a big piece about the vice presidential candidates. I think the That's last a niche. Time, I think the last time I did that actually was in 2000. when I covered Biden Mm -hmm. Uh, and and Cheney. turns
1: out that's an evergreen right mm -hmm. there. I may have done it
2: one more time. I really am not sure. Uh But at some point, you know, the news organizations that we work for now have so many platforms. There is no way you can do all of the things that I used to do. And at least not and sleep. It would not be possible. In fact, at the moment, because the Supreme Court has so many voting cases, and it keeps churning out orders in voting cases without, you know, any advance notice. And, you know, the other night, my husband was on a complete rant about how I was going to ruin my health. I was working every night until 10 or 11 o'clock at night, um, I needed they needed to give me help. And I so the next day I told my boss this, my editor, and he said, oh, sounds just like my wife.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the uh, the court when you first encountered it as compared to the court today, how things have changed.
2: Well, first of all, it was a way more liberal court, even though, you know, when I started to cover the court, there were already. Uh, there was already Chief Justice. Chief, the first year I covered the court, Chief Justice Warren was still chief. But after that, he retired and uh, President Nixon nominated a quite conservative judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals, Warren Berger, to be chief justice. And um, and pretty. I think the next year or the year after, I don't even quite remember, Harry Blackmun was a second appointee ultimately. And, uh, I mean, we had a bunch of confirmation fights in those years, which were fascinating. Right,
0: public, right, right, but,
2: yeah. But it was a much more liberal court. Then it moved to be a what we thought of as a conservative court. But I got to tell you that the conservatives of those days were very different than they are today. They were people who were, most of them, very active supporters of civil rights. They were... Republicans of the vintage of the '60s, '70s, and '80s—they were big supporters of the Voting Rights Act. They were—they um, were very deferential to congressional legislation, and—and um, and the court has moved steadily right over the years until. Um, you know, I think you could you could have con- continued to say that it was center right up until the time that Justice Kennedy retired, and then um, maybe in this last term because of some of the votes, a few votes that the Chief Justice cast that were unexpected to say the least. The main one actually being uh, the abortion decision, um, and mainly he and he was very clear that he didn't agree with. The whole line of abortion cases, but in this case, the court was being presented with a um, a statute that was identical to the one that had been struck down just a couple of years earlier, and he was very determined not to let the court just flip because the composition of the justices was different, and so he wrote a decision that was did not support the old decision, but said, "I'm just not. I'm not going there. I." Going to change this. We're not going to just do this instant turnaround. He's he's a conservative man, I think, in a lot of ways. And yeah,
1: he he's, he seems to seek to to define things as narrowly as yeah, possible.
2: As narrowly as possible.
1: Yeah. So you know, this is so interesting to me as you describe the evolution of the court because a lot of what you hear from uh, conservatives or have from the, uh, uh, you know, traditionally, and I think you still hear it is, we don't want judges who are going to legislate from the bench. And uh, what you're describing, though, seems like uh, a court that, that says that, but really doesn't do that.
2: Well, I guess it depends on how you look at these questions. So if you look, for example, at the court's trajectory about um, stri- in striking down a whole bunch of campaign finance laws. Those justices, and there were, were five, there probably will be six with Justice Barrett, those justices very clearly thought that restrictions on, they viewed money as speech, and they continue to view money as speech, and that that is... Uh, And that money is used to express speech so that limits on campaign contributions, campaign spending, campaign, all kinds of campaign restrictions, such as were in the McCain-Feingold law, are unconstitutional. They're a violation of the First Amendment. Other people don't agree with that. uh, And I would venture to say, having looked at the polling data on this, that the majority of the American public doesn't agree with that. I have a hefty majority doesn't.
1: Yeah, right.
2: Um, and they view money as money, not as speech. And the scholars accuse the conservative majority, the, the scholars who disagree with them, of weaponizing the First Amendment. So it all depends whose ox is being gored, whether it's an activist court or not. But the liberal critics of this court call it an activist court because it doesn't, it's not deferential to who after all they would say, who better to know about political money, campaign money, and how to restrict it so that it it somewhat levels the playing field. And Chief Justice Roberts in particular has written, our job isn't to level the the playing field. It shouldn't be to level the playing field. Free speech is free speech and if it ends up helping, you know, rich people more, too bad.
1: Yeah. If you can buy more of what's f- of that free speech, then that's okay. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. A couple of, uh, early court battles, uh, Confirmation battles were you covered one was uh, the Robert Bork and everybody everybody look and he was uh, he was defeated uh, An appointee of Ronald Reagan. Everybody points to that in 1986 as a turning point in uh, in in ju- judicial politics uh, Because Bork was uh, defeated on the basis of his not on deficiencies of character or uh you know, corruption, but on, on the basis of his views. Um, Do you look at it that way?
2: Yes and no. Um, Certainly, (laughs) certainly he was not like every candidate for the Supreme Court, every appoint, every nominee since, and even most of them before. He was on the witness stand for five days he declined to do any of the moot courts the, at the White House or anywhere to prepare him for this hearing. He and he had no real sense of how he came off. So that uh, when sort of the anti
1: Barrett in that regard,
2: yeah. Well, it was more even more than that because he he, he had to he answered every question and he'd written extensively about a lot of things. So, for example, he'd been against the 1964 Civil Rights Act and and the Voting Rights Act, and he had to the public accommodations law. And he had to answer those questions. Um, And his answers were sometimes better than others. Um, And then there was a, you know, but there were some moments also about that I think were, that have been forgotten in the dust heap of history. Uh, for example, he said that he was a believer in following precedent, that he thought it was important. And Senator Kennedy had a recording of a speech he'd given at Canisius College just a couple of years earlier. And in that, after that speech, one of the students asked him whether he thought that precedent was important. And he said, No, I don't think it's very important. Mm. So they call that the confirmation conversion at the time. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was that it was the kind of thing where he was somebody I don't remember who it was. It was a Republican senator who asked him a softball question, which was, why do you want to be on the Supreme Court? Now, you and I could write the answer to that. I as a reporter, you as a guy who helps mold opinion. But he didn't answer the way we would have said, which is I am a I injustice is important to me, how the law affects people is important to me. And I think I can do the job. That's some variation on that theme. Instead, he said, well, it would be an intellectual feast. And I remember coming into the office after the hearing that day, and one of the newscasters said to me, one of the people who read copy pretty much, said to me, what do you mean an intellectual feast? I don't somebody to feast on me yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: not good not good it wasn't you also you also covered the uh, the clarence thomas the clarence thomas confirmation hearing which we've heard a lot about lately in which uh, Anita hill made her allegations of sexual uh harassment vice president biden was uh, led the, led the hearings um and you know i'm wondering you, you hear you were a woman who had fought through all of these barriers yourself, who had been, as you mentioned, sort of victimized yourself uh, over the course of your career. Um, how did you view those hearings?
2: Well, for me, because I broke the story of Anita Hill's allegation
1: yeah, right.
2: that the, the committee had chosen not to investigate, they did finally send the FBI to interview her. And, and I finally obtained her affidavit. But because they really had not investigated the hearings, and because then-Senator Biden, the chairman of the committee, was, I think, at a different moment in his life, and he was, he wanted to be a good guy. He wanted to be loved by everybody, and he didn't want to do that kind of an investigation. And so, when I found out about it, which was quite late in the game, I did the story, and then, of course, as... As we all know, they had to have a second round of hearings, which were highly acrimonious, and um, they did nothing much to really investigate the charges. They had other witnesses. They were fr- the Democrats were afraid to call them. They were afraid that they could be that they wouldn't hold up under questioning. Um, and Clarence Thomas called it a high tech lynching, and was equally persuasive to. Anita Hill, who was very young at the time and and still in her 20s, as I recall. And I, you know, it was the worst of all worlds. They had to have a second hearing, second round of hearings, because they, the Republicans actually found that they didn't have the votes to confirm him without a second round. But they agreed to such a quick schedule and that they couldn't really do the job of investigation at a time when you might've actually come up with a more satisfactory answer to who was telling the truth.
1: There's a tremendous backlash to that in the country that, uh, uh, that was felt in 1992 in the elections right after, after that Biden has obviously spoken about that experience and remorsefully about how he led those hearings. Anita Hill, now supporting him in this race for president. I want to ask you about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because I know that she wasn't just someone you covered, but also a very close friend. Yeah. And first of all, I'm sorry for your loss, which must have been very, very painful. Uh, but tell me about her. Tell me about your relationship. I know that um, you you comforted each other at difficult times in your lives. Um, but tell me about her as a person, and tell me about her as a justice.
2: Well, I met her when I was first assigned to cover the court, and i think seventy and it was just i was still relatively new I think it was seventy one and um she had i was covering this case was which presented the the question of whether states could have statutes that automatically preferred men over women for in this case to be executors of estates which um, in, was the state law in, I can't remember if it was Idaho. I think it was Idaho, but or it could have been Iowa. Uh, you know, I'm having mm-hmm.
1: a brain No, or, No worries.
2: I'm having a COVID brain moment. Um, and um, I didn't really understand the brief, so I flipped to the front. The author was a Rutgers law professor named Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I called her up, and I got an hour-long lecture. And um, over the, you know, then I eventually met her some months later at some conference that was so boring that we went shopping. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And over the years, uh, we became first professional friends and then personal friends. After she was President Carter nominated her to the D.C. Circuit and then ultimately to the Supreme Court, but by the time uh, she was on the Supreme Court, I'd gotten to know her quite well. Just the way I had gotten to know Justice Scalia quite well, who was also a close friend of mine um but they were close friends, but because she was a woman, and because I'd known her even longer than I knew Justice Scalia, we started to be friends after all, when she was in her thirties and I was in my twenties, and over the years we became closer and closer, and she was such an extraordinarily wonderful and interesting human being. Even in the last weeks of her life, she was writing notes to people to thank them for something or other. Um, and and her brain, I mean, I <laughs> she's con- considerably older than I am. I would have given anything for that recall and ability to just Even as she was quite sick at the end of her life, she had all of her marbles plus a hundred more that all of us would love to have. And she was wonderful to me, especially when my late husband was terribly sick for a very long time, almost five years. He had fallen down, had had a head injury and when he was in the hospital in the, the the beginning he was in the hospital for a long time for months and months and first in the icu and then in rehab and then when he finally came home and then again later he he got sick again and each the first time she gave me uh, as i've often said the best advice life advice anybody ever gave me she said do not sit at his hospital bed all day. Go see him every day, make sure he knows you're there. Talk to him, hold his hand. But go to work. Because it may you you may not do the best your best work, but you will do perfectly good work. And you have to keep yourself be yourself and keep yourself so that when he does come home, You are still the Nina he loves, and you can take care of him. And she was right. When he came home, I was still myself, and I could take care of him and go to work and plan out how how I would make sure that he wasn't in danger during the day. And, you know, I had wonderful friends who helped me in addition to Ruth. But she would periodically when in the many months in which he was in the hospital for, you know, first in the beginning. And then again, a couple of years later, she would just scoop me up, take me with her and Marty and to some,
1: her husband, yeah, her
2: husband to some, to an opera, to a dinner, or invite me to dinner at their apartment with somebody interesting and just to keep my spirits up. And she was like that all of my, really, most all of my adult life, not all of hers, but all of mine.
1: And- Did that create for you a problem as someone who covers the court? I, I know the court is not like politics, so you're, you're not really covering people as personalities. You're not, you know, it's a, it's, it's a less, I don't know, I don't want to say adversarial kind of relationship but did it pose problems for you? Especially no, at the end of her life. You know, she you were with her a lot at I was the end with of her a life. lot in the you last You knew what month. her condition was. Did you feel as a journalist conflicted because you couldn't write about that or, or, or talk about that?
2: I didn't know a lot of things. I mean, I knew that she was in the last certainly few months of her life, I knew that she was very sick. It was obvious to anybody who laid eyes on her. You didn't have to have inside knowledge. She was just so thin. So I couldn't know whether she would survive or not, but I suspected she likely would not just because she looked so terribly thin. Mm -hmm. And I saw her a great deal. Um, But it never really was a problem because there were such clear boundaries. I couldn't ask her stuff about what was going on behind the scenes in the court. And if I'd done that, the friendship probably would have been over because she would have looked at me like I was out of my mind. It was just, you know, it was. And there were times when she gave interviews to other people and told them things she'd never told me, which really ticked me off. (laughs) I bet. So, and then there was one time when she asked me not to ask her anything about what she'd said about Donald Trump because she'd had to eat crow. She'd been very unflattering about him, which is something she should not have done. She recognized quite clearly that she should not have done. And she'd never done that in front of me. And so I, I had had a long planned interview with her and it was right after she'd apologized. And I said to her the day before, I was talking to her about what we would talk about in this interview. And I said, Ruth, I'm going to have to ask you about what you said about Trump. And she said, oh, please don't do that. Don't ask me that. I said, I can't do that. That's my job. You know, that's my job. And so she understood that. I asked her and she reamed me out in the interview.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then you guys went on. Um, Let let me ask you a question that, that comes up a lot, which is Justice Kennedy retired because he wanted President Trump to because he wanted to retire, but he also wanted a Republican president to replace him, or so it was reported. Um, And the question comes up, why Justice Ginsburg didn't retire during the Obama years to ensure that she would be replaced by President Obama?
2: Well, this is some spec, this is what I would call informed speculation on my part.
1: Okay, I'll take it.
2: In 2013, which would have been probably the last time she might have easily been able to retire and Obama could have replaced her. I was very surprised that Mitch McConnell blocked Merrick Garland, even from having a hearing, for basically 10 months, 8 to 10 months, somewhere in there. Um, I thought there was enough institutional whatever to make that happen. But she would not have been surprised, it turns out. Um, and there were two things going here. One was, I think she felt that she was at the top of her game. You might've thought of her as, um, in 2013 or 2014 as, you know, being what her late seventies or 80 years old. Um, and she would not have felt that she was in peril of losing her life. and. She also thought, I think, that Hillary Clinton would run and be elected, and she really wanted to give a nomination to the first woman president to replace her. Um, So I think what likely those two things were operating. She thought she could do this job better than anybody that Obama could get confirmed, and um, that he would have to make compromises. Uh, and that she was the right person to stay on the court and that she could tough it out. As it turned out, she came close, but she couldn't do it all the way.
1: Do you think that, um, now Justice Breyer is 82 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you expect to see him retire if if Biden gets elected and there's a Democratic Senate?
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: Mm -hmm. And probably fairly quickly, right, given what we saw transpire with. uh, uh, I think
2: that would be my, that would be my guess.
1: So before we go, tell me, um, we, let's end where we, we began. Um, tell me what Americans should expect from, from this court and how life might be different as a result of this court and also this a flood of... Of judicial nominations that has been that have been made by President Trump during his four years, he's been he and McConnell have been uh, uh, ruthlessly efficient in replacing uh, in, in filling judicial seats. How is this gonna How is this gonna change our country?
2: Well, it breaks my heart to say this, but I think there'll be a lot less respect. Actually, from both sides for the court, because it will be viewed as more partisan. And um, I always had a lot of faith that the court was institutionally sound, and that even though I personally might not like this opinion or that opinion, the court as an institution would continue, would not really change dramatically, and would Continue to be sort of a bulwark of stability for democracy, and I'm afraid that's really in jeopardy now. And um, it's partly because all of the speed bumps. It wasn't just the filibuster, which the Obama administration finally broke down and got rid of um, in the last two years of
1: its of the presidency. For uh, for just for judges. Below the Supreme Court. For judges
2: below the Supreme Court, because Mitch McConnell was blocking people for years, even people who were proposed by the Republican senators in their states, because he wanted to keep those seats open. So this was a political power play, pure and simple, on behalf of a conservative and Republican um, minority and majority leader. And so I think that that was ultimately the way, you know, the, the, and each, at each, you know, I wish I could say, you know, you, you heard Lindsey Graham say at the confirmation as the hearings closed after the vote. um, And he said, we didn't start this. You did. But he's also the guy who said when they blocked Merrick Garland, you you can hold me to it. I will never vote to have uh, somebody pushed through during an election.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And, and, um, and, and, and of course that turned out to be completely false. True. Yes. Uh, You know, that was not what he ended up doing. So when you have this repeated kind of behavior and I have no real, uh, I have no doubt that the Democrats will probably do something similar. Um, They will. I don't think they'll, rush a nominee through in a matter of a couple of weeks, but they they won't have to because there's not an election going on. But what will happen, and probably should happen, because they haven't expanded the lower courts for years, is that they'll probably get rid of the filibuster rule for legislation. They'll broaden the number of judges who are serving on the courts, um, on the lower courts, and they'll fill some of those seats to even things out. But this will be. It used to be that you could you could expand the courts because they are needed. They they need more judges, and you you could do that with some sort of consensus between the two parties and make some agreements about um, how they how they would handle the other side was get completely was was going to lose everything. Well. The Republicans then, in recent times, have not just removed the filibuster for judgeships. um, They've removed all of the rules, every little speed bump, like the so-called blue slip, which allows the minority party to at least have a say in who's going to become a judge. Because they had to return the blue slip of the president, even of the opposing party, and had to that view had to be considered because they if if uh, Senator so and so from Oklahoma didn't want that person appointed, he would not returning the blue slip was a way to force the White House to consult with you right. And the Obama White House actually did that on numerous occasions and proposed people who were um, suggested by or at minimum approved by, Republican senators from Republican states, and they still didn't get a vote. And so I, I see, you know, this, I don't want to sound one-sided about this because I don't have any doubt you're seeing this now on the left with the left insisting, demanding that, um, that Biden, for example, add two justices to the court or have term limits or whatever you figure out what it is. It's, it's probably not good policy. It probably isn't even good politics. And it's really bad for the country to do it, unless you can really prove that something is wrong with what's happening with the system. And I think they have half a proof in the way the Democrats have been treated um, in both over the Garland nomination and the way the Barrett nomination was rushed through, even as millions of people had already voted in the election. But that's only half or a quarter of a proof. You need more than that to change a system that has served us very well over the years.
1: Yeah. Well, it maybe that uh, what happened in the 1930s will happen again, and the uh, determined resistance of the court to uh, legislation and uh approaches to deal with the nation's problems will drive uh drive a president biden to make such a decision but i i I agree with you look i share your concerns but mostly i appreciate your observations because there's no better uh there's no better student of this court uh than than you you know
2: i feel a little bad i feel a little bad about one thing what's that I've beat up on the Republicans a lot. And I have no more faith that the Democrats having been so burned won't be just as bad. And that's that's what is going to be such a blow to the courts as a as a bulwark of democracy, as an independent judiciary. Chief Justice Rehnquist used to say that an independent judiciary is the crown jewel in is the jewel in the crown of American democracy. And we are losing that through these partisan wars over the court.
1: Yeah. Well, you
2: can't You can't expect the judges, if they really are independent, will do everything you want them to do. Right. But they shouldn't be partisan pawns either.
1: No, I, I quite agree. Uh, I quite agree. On the other hand, you shouldn't sort of expect them to reflexively oppose everything that you want to do either. So it's a tough one. I mean, Look, these are tough times for all our democratic institutions, and the courts are not uh, immune from that. So we will see what happens, and I will look forward to hearing you comment on it along the way with all the wisdom and experience of someone who's looked at this court for such uh, such a long time and with such distinction.
2: Well, thank you for having me so much. I wish you all well in your journalistic career. Thank you. Did you start out that I way? I started
1: in journalism, yeah, yeah. you started
2: out that I way. I came back. Coming back to your roots. Yeah. That's what they need to do. They have to do finding your roots for David Axel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nina Totenberg, <laughs> great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox. Hannah McDonald and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.